as quite a lot of you know, the Series 7 is being phased out. After January 30th, there'll be nobody left who can actually take the old Legacy Series 7, the 250-question quiz, six hours, a break in the middle, hell. If you registered or opened your window before October 1st, you can take the old 7. After October 1st, you have to take the new SIE exam. The new exam is half facts and regs and customer accounts. That's the one you can take without even working for a broker-dealer. You go work for, you're in college, and you you know what? I want to up my resume a little bit by having an exam on top. I can take this. It's like $60. It's probably an hour and a half worth of work, maybe two hours of testing. The studying takes a while, but the testing is only about an hour and a half. They think they give you 75 minutes. Um, it's mostly fact-based. There's customer accounts. There's some risk questions, maybe an option question, maybe a margin question, and a lot of regulations. What can we do here? What's money laundering, cybersecurity, and all that stuff? Anyone who's taken the seven and failed, they do not have to wait 30 days to take the new exam. It's a brand new clean slate. I had a student come to me, they took it three times, they failed it, and they didn't know what to do. They didn't want to wait six months. I told them they missed it by like two or three points. So I said, go take the SIE exam. They took it. They banged it out. They don't know what their score is because now also they don't give you a score unless you fail. So if you pass and you got a 90, no one will ever know. It's pass or score. If you get a score, then you failed. If you don't get a score, then you pass. Um, she banged it out, she got it done, and now working on the top-off exam, which is mostly suitability. You have to read the book. Memorization, memorization doesn't work. You're going to get pressure from everyone you work at. Just take exams. That's how I did it. Well, to be fair, most people that you've talked to have not taken this exam. This exam is going to be 10 to 15 options, 5 or 6 margin, and then a crap load of suitability. 92 grandmother wants this. What does she do? Even the option questions are going to be more suitability-based than the math-based. So don't worry about those T-charts too much. Really worry about suitability. Really worry about just get the options down and get why we do options. Like here, buyers have rights, sellers have obligations. You have to know that if you buy a call, you have the right to buy or sell. If you buy a put, you have the right to sell. If you sell a call, you must sell the stock. If you sell a put, you must buy it. You have to know that you buy for either insurance or speculation, and you only the only reason you ever sell an option is for income. That's the only reason. There are no other reasons to sell an option other than for income. Um, long stock, you sell a call to add some income. You buy a put to protect it. There's no other options you can do on this exam that work. It doesn't work. If you don't see Buy a put or sell a call, then it's not an option question. Maybe it's a sell stop. Maybe it's something else, but it is not a option question. Okay. Um, if you're taking the Series 7 and you fail it, don't worry about it. Just bang out the SIE real quick and then work on the Series 7 top-off. If you're taking the SIE, they actually have a great little site on FINRA. gives you a practice exam. I've heard it's a little bit harder than the real exam. Um, but the questions, it gives you the wording, and it actually scores you, and it's their questions. You will not see those questions. It's not like you can cheat, but you can get a feel for the questions and get 
an idea of what it's going to be like. And I have a couple people that would take it. I took it with them, the practice exam. Then I said, okay, you're weak on customer accounts and regs. And they worked on that. The one kid, he got a 68 on the practice. Two days later, he was taking the test. I told him to spend all day Monday reading customer accounts and, and um, regulations. And he goes, thank God we did that. Tuesday, boom, he goes, I don't think I got more than a couple wrong. I'm not saying that's actually true. We don't know because you don't get a score. But he felt very comfortable taking that exam. I'll come back with more. Hopefully, I can help you out. If you feel like you need some help, feel free to email me. I'm at capadvantagetutoring.com or just shoot me an email. You can find me on LinkedIn and on Instagram under Series 7 Whisperer. Thank you. So for the SIE, you need to have the risks down. You got to know them. I mean, it's, it's not a hard exam. You just got to know the risk cold. So you have to know default risk, interest rate risk, reinvestment risk, call risk, inflation, legislative, systemic, non-systemic, political, currency. So let's start with the easy ones for the bonds. So for all debt, which is an issue we're borrowing money from an investor, the biggest risk is pretty much that he's not going to pay you. And that's default risk. Default risk or credit risk is a risk that he won't pay you. Corporates have it, munis have it. Treasuries don't because they have the government that can print money. Interest rate risk. Interest rate risk is a risk that rates go up and your 5% bond is not nearly as attractive as it was before. So since it's not as attractive, the price is going to drop. You buy a 4% bond, rates go to 6. They're issuing it at $1,000, paying 6% a year. Why the hell would anyone want your 4%er? So they will only want it if the price is right and the price will have to be lower. Reinvestment risk. This is like one of the biggest ones that everyone gets wrong. Reinvestment risk is the risk that as you're getting paid your 5% or 10% every year, you're going to take that money and reinvest it. The risk is that as rates drop, the only thing available to you is a lower rate. You're getting 10% a year. You're getting your 100 bucks on a bond. Interest rates drop to like 5%. So any new money is only going to earn 5%, which is your reinvestment risk. Zero coupons do not, not, not have reinvestment risk because you're not getting anything till the end. Call risk. Kind of another problem with the rates going down is that as an issuer, why would I want to pay 6? If rates drop to 4, why wouldn't I just rather pay 4? So what I would do is I would issue a new bond to new people at a lower rate and take that money and pay you off. Kind of like a credit card. If you have a credit card and you're paying 20% and another bank offers you a 10%, you're going to take the 10%er and pay off the old one. Inflation risk, that's big for long-term bonds. Prices go up. Prices just invariably go up. That's just the way it is. Everything you do, everything price as years go on, it's going up. But that bond is paying that 50 bucks every year, and you're, you're all you're getting it. So technically, every year that you own the bond, you're getting a little bit worse. Because you're still getting 50, but everything you bought before now costs 51, 52, $53 more. Those are the big debt risks. Default, interest rate, reinvestment risk, call risk, inflation risk. Another one for munis, since we know munis are tax-free, is the risk that they're going to change the tax code. So if they all of a sudden give everyone a flat tax, which would be a great idea, but if they gave a flat tax, then munis would not nearly be attractive. So those are the risks on debt. 
Understand, equity does not have any of those risks, not on this exam. Real world, maybe, but on the exam, equity does not have default, interest rate, reinvestment risk, call risk, inflation or legislative. And they have their own risks, which we'll talk about later. But what is a safe assumption is if you assume preferred has all the same risks as bonds or as debt. Just treat it that way. Okay? Thank you very much. Have a great day. Hey guys, as we know, the SIE has come out and some people are having trouble with it. Not a lot of people, but some people are. And some people are more worried about it than they should be. It's stressing people out. Just remember, it's very fact-based. It's not super difficult. If you do your reading, you should be fine. Now, I'm going to go through what FINRA did for the first time, which is awesome, is have this FINRA practice exam of the SIE so you can kind of get used to the wording. Maybe you won't see the questions, maybe you will, but for the most part, it's about getting used to the wording. But what I'm going to start doing is creating a series of little, hopefully under a couple of minutes, so it'll bore the hell out of you. Um, I'm going to answer a couple of questions at a time, and I'm going to go through it like this. So I would say it's question number two, but then FINRA actually rotates the questions around, so there's not really a um, any use for me saying question number two. So I'm just going to read the question first. Which of the following U4 reportable events results in a statutory disqualification? So the, the choices are a personal bankruptcy filing, written customer complaint, a felony theft charge, or a felony conviction for driving under the influence DUI charge. So the way this goes is you have to disclose certain things bankruptcies, any kind of liens, stuff like that. Not a foreclosure, which is great, but whatever. Um, reporting is not the same as being kicked out of the business. If you see statutory disqualification, that means they cannot work in the business. So let's go with this question. So we look at personal bankruptcy. Yes, you have to disclose that if it happened within 10, within 10 years prior to you registering. A written customer complaint alleging misappropriation of assets. While that has to be disclosed again to FINRA because you're stealing their money, it's not, it's not a conviction, so it's not statutory disqualification. A felony theft charge. The charge is not the game. The charge is just your charge. You have to disclose it, but it doesn't knock you out. A felony conviction. That's the game. Felony conviction in the last 10 years is what's going to give you SD. Statutory disqualification, I can't speak. The other part of it is, if you have a securities or financial related misdemeanor, that does the same thing. You're going to have the same problem. Now, I'm going to try one more, see how this goes before the hell it even does. Number three, useless information, but it is number three. Under a system of statutory voting, a common stockholder has as many votes for each vacancy on the board of directors as the number of blank. A, positions vacant on the board. Well, that sounds kind of redundant to the question, so that's not the answer. We're throwing that out. Director's presence at the meeting. Who cares? I don't care who's there. You're in or out. It doesn't matter. Um, C, shares owned by the stockholder. We will come back to that one. And proxies available for voting by the board. Proxies are just the ability to vote by mail. So the answer is 
statutory voting, you have the number of votes for each vacancy on the board of directors as the number of shares owned by the stockholder. Example, you have 100 shares, there's three board seats open, you have 300 votes. 100 for, per seat. So if you have 100 shares in this three board seats, you're going to get to vote 100 times for each board of directors. That's statutory. If it's cumulative, it's the same number, 300 votes, but you can use them any way you want. You can use them 300 on A or 100 on A and 50 on another and the balance on whatever you want to do. You can make it up any way you want. That's two questions. I'm going to publish this, see what kind of, what kind of crap I get for doing this, and we'll go from there. Have a great night. Hey guys, um, I've been getting a lot of questions about what vendors to use. So I'm going to make it sort of quick. Um, on the SIE, it's not as important which vendor you use. Look, if you have the exam zone or the other ones that I don't normally mention, it's probably okay because the SIE is very basic. The information's the same. But I would stick with STC, Securities Trading Corporation. I would go with Notman or Kaplan, or Pest Perfect. Even training consultants is okay. So you're not really going to go wrong on the SIE with either STC, Kaplan, Notman, Pest Perfect, or training consultants. Couple issues. STC has a lot of questions. They actually change it where you can adjust and create your own exam. They used to not do that, so that's good. They've been doing it forever. Their questions are pretty simply based. They have good information in their books, and they have a lot of questions. Kaplan, it's a big company, so they're pretty good, but some of their questions are actually harder than the exam. Now, some people think that's great, and sometimes it is, but it's not always better because kind of like if I'm teaching you how to change a tire, I don't need to know where rubber was made. So sometimes it's not oh, harder is always better. Sometimes accurate is better. Not men. They're a smaller company. This is the first time they've ever written their own book. There's some typos in it. But it's pretty good information, and they have really good supplements. If you can get through the typos, they have an addendum that helps you out. Fourth, Pass Perfect is pretty okay. They've been around for a while. The problem is, is that they're very intense. They have a lot of information, almost too much information. But on the good hand, whatever you want to use for that word, you can get it. It'll set you up for the Series 7 top-off. Again, they're more information than you need. Training Consultants very basic it's the videos are pretty good her voice is annoying as heck but she gets the information across um the book is more of a powerpointy kind of thing so it's a little light on information but the questions are closer to the style of the exam so you can kind of look if you take any one of those four you're going to be fine i would stay away from the other ones like the um like solomon i don't know much about exam zone i don't know much about um I would go with those, and you, any questions you have, please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks a lot, and sorry for taking up your time. Hey, guys. I, I see a lot of people panicking and emailing me when they see that they fail the exam. First of all, don't sweat it. It's, it's a minor bump in the road. It's not that big a deal. Right now, it seems like the worst thing in the world. You're going to sit there and tell your boss, first thing, as soon as you fail, email him, text him, call him, her, 
get it over with, own it, say, look, I'll get it next time. You got to be positive because you don't want to walk in there and tell them. It's better to tell them the night before, right when it happens. And then when you get in there, everyone knows already, so you don't have to keep repeating yourself. They'll always be the jerks who sit there and try to ask you, even though they know, try to embarrass you. Don't be embarrassed. It happens. You'd be amazed at how many people have failed this exam. And you won't find out unless you do fail. First thing you do after you tell your boss, go home, write everything down. Write it all down, the good, the bad. Go through the table of contents in your book and try to figure out, oh, I saw that question, I saw this. Put it in a drawer. Then forget about it and relax for the night. Just do it because you're going to need it. Next, tomorrow, the next day, start. See if your firm will let you study for the top off. That's the way you should do it. Get See if your firm will let you take the top off exam and start studying for that. Read the book. Don't take a lot of tests. Just read, read, read the book. The good thing about that is that you're actually low-key studying for the SIE at the same time. So you study for the top off. Maybe three weeks later, four weeks later, you take the top off. You're ready. You take it. Since you've been studying for the top off and it's the next level beyond the SAE, you're pretty much ready to take the SAE right away. Bang out the top off, worry about the risk, the suitability, get that down. Then go reschedule the SAE. You can even do that while you're studying. And boom, go take it. The good thing is that three or four weeks that you're studying for the top off, you're not focusing on the SAE. You're not embarrassed. You're moving along. You're moving forward. So, after you take the top off, take the SIE, take that, you should be ready second time through. The reason I say to do this is, one, it doesn't matter which way you go. It doesn't matter top off SIE. Some firms like Goldman are actually having people take the top off first and then take the SIE like a week later. Because the top off is an extension, a deeper version of the SIE. This way you're moving forward. You don't have to wait 30 days to retake any of these exams. If you take the SAE, you do have to wait 30 days. But if you take the SAE and miss it, you can take the top off as soon as you're ready. As soon as you're done with the top off, hopefully that'll be three, four weeks out. You can take the SAE right away. And then you're not really that far behind. Instead of going 30, 30, 30 and looking at 90 days out, you're about 40 to 45 days out. And then you can take the 63, 65, whatever you're going to take. So don't panic. It doesn't matter. A year from now, no one's going to remember that you failed the SAE. They just won't. Please, if you have any, if you want, leave comments down and I'll be happy to respond to you. How are you guys? Um, I'm just following up on another question I get. The previous one is about whether you should take a class or not. This one I'm going to talk about if you want to bring in a tutor. First of all, a tutor is not for everyone. They're like between 75 and 200 bucks an hour. It is expensive, and you do get what you pay for, meaning that if you find a tutor for 50 bucks an hour, you're getting what you pay for. If you pay 200, that's a little on the high side, but usually that's more for the corporate guys. Even some of the big vendors, like the, the Notmans and the Kaplans, they have tutors, but they're charging three, two fifty, three, four hundred an hour. That's not, I mean, that's a lot to spend for a one-on-one -on -one if it's coming out of your pocket. A um, couple advantages, it may save you weeks of studying and let you start earning faster. So you have to sort of think of it as an investment. A lot of my students, I always say, you know, is this getting expensive? And they go, no, it's worth it. 
because one, I explain everything and I put it in a normal, normal English, like whatever you want to call it, where it's simple version. As I stutter, um, it, it makes it easier for them when they read the book again, they go, oh, I get it. Now I get what you're saying. The options, I clean it up. Maybe instead of you spending eight hours studying options, we spend a good two hours and you can move on to other things. So there are some examples. Um, online versus in person. Online is okay. I do enough of it. Probably about 30, 40% of my business is online. In person, obviously better. But with the new, with WebEx or Skype or even the other platforms, it's not so bad. I mean, I have the girls I teach, you know, they're holding their books up and I can read them. And it's, it's a lot of back and forth and it goes well. Um, the big companies, part of the problem is that they make you follow a schedule that they have. And it's pretty hit or miss. You don't know what you're getting and you're paying a crap load of money. Um, I usually let the student to direct where they go. I know what I want and I know what they need to learn. But a lot of times they have, I need, I need help with this and I let them direct it. Or maybe we cover a bunch of different topics and um, maybe we cover bonds for 10 minutes and equity and then maybe we talk about preemptive rights. There's a lot of different things we can talk about. Um, couple things when you're vetting one. Look, if you run into one and, you, and you're not sure, send me an email or send me a note. I can probably look into them and tell them whether it's worth it or not. I do enough business that I'm not going to be jealous of helping somebody out. Um, make sure they have a background. Don't get some high school teacher or construction worker. Nothing wrong with those jobs, but that doesn't mean they can teach. Um, again, try to get some references. You know, you talk to somebody, say, do you have any references? Or if you, if they are reviews, look at the reviews. Make sure they're not like from the same person. Um, one thing, if they open a book and start looking up answers, run the heck away. Go. If they start reaching through the book or making you, you know, like, oh, hold on, I don't know what that means, you got to go. That means a guy just is putting his name up there and trying to make some money off you. If it's for a couple clarification, like a lot of times I will open a book and I go, no, that's wrong. And they go and they show me and I go, no, that's wrong or whatever. The books aren't always perfect, but I know my stuff. And if I sit and go through a book a lot of times, I'm doing something wrong. You're, I'm trying to explain something to you in a normal simple way. If I'm going through a book, you can do that yourself. So again, when you're looking for tutors, vet them, get references, compare one tutor versus another. I never worry about it. If one guy comes to me, I'm looking at two different tutors. I tell them what I have. And if they go with the other one, that's fine. Um, it is what it is. So just make sure you keep, keep reading and going from there. A lot of my students come at me and say, should I take a class or not? Um, I'm torn. I'm okay with it. If you have the right mindset, you have to remember that most of them um, are more of a review and they're high level. Like they'll touch a little bit on each thing just to give you the general, but they're not going to teach you a lot of things. A lot of it's going to be review. Um, if you do the all day one, it's pretty intensive, but it's only three days. When I used to teach them, they were five, and I struggled to get the information in. And now they're three, so I don't know what they do. It's pretty hard. And the problem is some of them you get, they just read from the PowerPoint. And it's basically you're going to fall asleep during it. Um, if you're okay sitting in there 
and dealing with and writing notes and maybe going to class a second time or watching the on-demand, it's fine. Um, spread out ones where they're like twice a week for three, four weeks, feel a little bit better because you're not getting all that information shoved at you in an eight-hour span. Um, they go very fast through the classes. So all the sections are boom, boom, boom. Options don't take very long. And I personally don't think they're really good at doing options. For the SIE, I think they're fine for the options. But for the top off, it's a little problematic because it's more about suitability and they're worrying about teaching to the lowest common denominator and they, and they just teach the math. Um, look, if your firm's paying for it, go. It's totally worth it. Bang. But it is hit or miss with the teachers. You may get a good teacher. You may get a bad teacher. You just don't know. And sometimes they switch teachers in the middle. If you really want the feedback on it, feel free to make comments and I'll, you know, DM you or whatever it is. Um, if you like what I'm doing, hit like, subscribe, watch my stuff. I'll keep doing stuff all the time. And um, put comments in. I'm trying to help out. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to start this up again where I'm going to start doing some questions from the sample SAE exam just to give you an idea of how I answer them and, and maybe help out a little bit. No load mutual funds may have lower expense ratios than load mutual funds for which of the following reasons. First of all, in the books you'll see sales charge. In the real world they call them loads, loads or no loads. A load is a sales charge. So the first answer, no load funds do not charge 12E1 fees. Well, they can. They can charge a 12E1 fee, so that's not the answer. No load funds are not permitted to charge a 12E1 fee greater than 25 basis points. We will come back to that one. Sales charges for load mutual funds increase their annual expense ratio. Okay. Expense ratio is what it costs to, to what it's going to cost you each year in the fund. Sales charge is what it costs to get in the door, like a like a um like a cover charge. Um, the max sales charge is 8.5%. That's the max allowable. They don't do that anymore. To get that kind of level of a sales charge, you would have to pull off like made-off level returns, which is not really possible. Fund managers' fees for no-load funds are always lower than load funds. No, that's not true. Their managers charge what they charge, and they've got to pay for their good Ferraris and Rolls Royces. Okay, so A, no load funds do not charge 12B1 fees. They can, so we throw that out. C, sales charges for load mutual funds increase their annual expense. We've already talked about that. They have nothing to do with the expense ratio. Sales charges are cover charges to get in. Expense ratio is what it costs to run the fund. Fund managers charge lower fees for no loads. That's not true. So the answer is no load funds are not permitted to charge a 12B1 fee greater than 25 basis points. That's the statement. That's a true statement, so that's the answer. No-load mutual funds can only be called no-load if they have a no-sales charge, and they do not charge more than 25 basis points, or 0.25% of the NAV. 12B1 fees are what they charge you every year, like 1%, maybe three-quarters of a percent, for marketing and advertising. You're paying for marketing and advertising, so they bring in more people, so that your expense ratios are shared among more people. Kind of like a summer house. You buy a house for the summer, the two of you, it's going to cost you 20 grand. But if you're bringing 20 people willing to sleep on the floor, 
it's going to cost you two grand for the summer. That's what a 12B1 fee is. You're paying someone to bring in more investors. Thank you. If you like what I'm doing, if you're disgusted or whatever, just tell me. Like, subscribe. Let's have some fun. Hello again. I am back doing some more questions. If you like what I'm doing, please comment, like. I'm getting some comments, so I'm going to keep doing this. I'm hoping it's helping. If it is helping, please let me know. Um, here's a question. A bond in U.S. dollars offered in the United Kingdom. Again, a bond in U.S. dollars offered in the United Kingdom. Is it a euro dollar bond? Is it a euro dollar? Is it American depository receipt? Or is it a banker's acceptance? I'm going to go around a little bit. Let's start with the bottom. A banker's acceptance. A banker's acceptance is a security short term that helps importers and exporters smooth out the trade. This way, the importer knows the money's in a safe place. The exporter knows the money's there, so they feel better about sending stuff. It helps foreign trade. That's not the answer. An American depository receipt is not the answer. Everyone confuses that and because acceptance and euro dollars. An ADR, or an American depository receipt, is a foreign security like British Petroleum packaged by a U.S. bank and the package is sold in the U.S. on an exchange, hopefully on an exchange. So again, an ADR is a foreign security like a stock like British Petroleum packaged into a bunch of shares and that package is what's trading on the U.S. exchanges as a receipt for the foreign security. A euro dollar is U.S. currency in a foreign bank. Like if you go to the Bank of Italy and you go, oh, I have 10 grand in U.S. cash and I deposit it in the bank and I go, don't put it into euros, keep it in the strong dollar. That's a euro dollar. A euro dollar bond is the answer. Ding, ding, ding. The euro dollar bond is a bond like, say, Apple issues a bond in London, but it pays interest and maturity in U.S. dollars. Again, it's a U.S. company normally. Issuing a bond in any foreign country, doesn't have to be Europe. And the interest and principal are paid in U.S. dollars. That's question number one. Let's try another one. At issuance, which of the following debt securities is not a money market? Again, at issuance, which of the following debt securities is not a money market? First, commercial paper. Banker's acceptance, T-bills, treasury bonds. Those are the four choices. A, commercial paper. B, banker's acceptance. C, T-bills. D, treasury bonds. This is definitely going to be a question you'll see. Either of these could be a question you'll see on either the SAE or possibly the top one. First, commercial paper. That is short-term corporate debt under 270 days. It's issued at a discount. I need money real quick with my corporation. I'm going to borrow like a million dollars and pay back 1.1 in nine months or 270 days. It's exempt from a lot of things, but it is a money market. Bankers acceptance, we talked about it before. It's for short term for international trade. It is a money market. T-bills are government issued discount securities that are either in one month, three months, six months, possibly a year. 
for the most part, one, three, and six months. They are absolutely money markets because they're short term. The last one is treasury bonds. At issuance, a treasury bond is a 30-year bond. So right there, it's not a money market. So again, a T-bond is issued for a 30-year maturity. It pay, you buy it at par. It matures at par, but it pays you a coupon every six months. Now, the good thing about treasuries is that they are federally taxable, but they don't pay state tax. And fun fact, there's no default risk. Thank you. If you like what I'm doing, please like, comment. I'm going to keep asking for that. Please subscribe. Have a great night. Here we are again. I am going to touch on options this time. Very basic. I'm not doing big options. Um, but these are SIE questions. The first question, a transaction in which a writer covers a position by purchasing an option is called. Let's think about that. So the transaction was in which a writer covers. So the writer is someone who sold short. That is a sale. So that first of all, we know that the beginning is a sale. And a writer means he did it for the first time. He shorted it. So that's an opening sale. So now we just go back to the other side and go, okay, what's the purchaser when he covered it called? Well, is it a closing sale, a closing purchase, an opening sale, or an opening purchase? Okay, so I look at that and go, okay, I shorted the call. That's an opening sale. That must be followed by a closing something. So the closing something has to be a closing purchase because I sold first, I bought second. So an opening sale will be followed by a closing purchase. Vice versa, an opening purchase will be followed by a closing sale. That's one question down. Hope I helped. The next one is, a put option is in the money when the market price of the underlying is. Again, a put option is in the money when the market price of the underlying is. A, lower than exercise. B, higher than the exercise price. C, equal to the exercise price. D, lower plus the premium. So first of all, in the money and intrinsic are synonymous. They mean the exact same thing. In the money and intrinsic are the same thing. It's how much in the money the option is. Not with your premium, anything. So if I have a call, I have a 50 call, anything above the strike price is in the money or intrinsic. There's value there. So anything above the strike price is intrinsic. So you have a 50 call, stock's trading at 52, boom, it's two bucks in the money. Does not mean you made money or not, it's just called in the money or intrinsic. You could have paid a four premium and still lost with it being in the money because it has nothing to do with you. So let's try this. If it's a put option, you want it to go down. So if a 50 um, stutter, a 50 put, if it goes down, it goes in the money. So if you have a 50 put and it goes below 50, you're in the money. So let's go with these choices again. A put option is in the money when the market price of the underlying is lower than exercise, A, B, higher than exercise, C, equal to the exercise price, D, lower plus premium. So throw the premium out means nothing. So a put option is in the money when it's below the strike price. So the answer would be lower than exercise. And on this exam, they may use different words, strike price, exercise price, stuff like that. Again, if you like what I'm doing, like, comment, tell me what you want to hear. And I will absolutely try to help it out.
please subscribe. Thank you. Okay, everyone, I'm back again. Um, I got a couple of requests for stock split questions. We'll go there. But before I get started, please feel free to like or subscribe to my channel. I'll keep pumping stuff out as much as I can. Um, and please tell me you like it because I have a big ego and I like to hear that stuff. First question, which of the following represents the effect of a stock split? Which of the following represents the effect of a stock split? A, the price per share of the common stock increases. B, the price per share of the common stock decreases. Each stockholder proportionate ownership decreases. Each stockholder's proportionate ownership increases. Well, let's go through this. First of all, stock split is a marketing tool. It really just makes it look better. Think of a big pizza. You have one big pizza with no cuts out of it. It's a big pie. If I cut it down the middle, you still have the same amount of pizza. It's just in two pieces. They're half as much. If I cut it in eight, it's still the same pizza, but it's just eight pieces. So if I bought it for $8, this big pizza with no slices in it, and I put cuts in it, now I put eight cut, cuts in it, it's still eight slices of a dollar each, still eight bucks. So C and D are out. Your proportionate ownership does not increase or decrease. Nothing really changes except for your stock looks better. So if they do a stock split, say you want 100 shares at 30, and they do a two for one, you now own 200 shares at 15. It's still worth three grand. It's just looks better so let's go through this what happens to our price per share it goes down so the price per share of common stock decreases that's the game on this all it is is making it look better look at google a few years ago it was trading at 1200 nobody's buying a 1200 stock so what they did was they did a two for one now it's a 600 stock boom everyone can buy that for some reason i'd rather buy 200 shares two shares at 600 than one share at 1200 no difference, but it feels better. And now it's back up to the sky again. So that's one question down. Again, the price per share after a stock split decreases and the number of shares increase. Let's go the other way now. Let's go with a reverse stock split. An investor owns 100 shares of XYZ common stock at the current market price of 50 bucks a share. If XYZ conducts a one for two reverse split, the investor's post split stock position will be 50 shares at $100 a share. So it's reverse. Instead of having eight slices, they make it into four or two or one. They're making it, they're trying to raise the price. You normally wouldn't do it with a $50 stock. Normally they do this with like a, a 50 cent stock. So if you have a 50 cent stock and nobody's buying it, maybe I do a one for 10. So for every 10 shares I own, I get one. So now instead of me owning 100 shares, I own 10 of them. But now the price is at $5. Again, 100 shares of a 50 cent stock is the same as $10, 10 shares of a $5 stock. So a reverse split gives you less shares, but they're worth more. Again, zero sum game. On this one, an investor owns 100 shares. They do a one for two reverse split. You're now going to have 50 shares at $100 a share. Half as many, worth twice as much. Same thing. Again, if you like what I'm doing, tell me what you want to hear. If this wasn't good enough, tell me. I'll, re I'll refilm it and do another one. Like and subscribe, please, because I have an ego.
Hey guys, I'm back again, and if you look a little annoyed, I just recorded this, and somehow, in my idiocy, I just deleted the entire video, so I'm giving it another shot. Um, please subscribe and share if you think I'm helping you. Make comments if you have more suggestions. My biggest thing here is that a lot of my students, and one I just left, is confusing cash account with cash trade or transaction. So I'm going to explain it to you in my way. A cash account is an account where you pay in full for everything. You buy $100,000 worth of stock, you pay your hundred grand. That's a cash account. Settlement has nothing to do with it. You buy two grand, you pay two grand. A margin account is an account where you leverage by using margin. You're borrowing shares to buy stock. If you want to buy 10000 in stock, you drop five grand and you borrow the rest. It's leverage. You're increasing your risk, but you're also hopefully you're increasing your return. So again, cash account, margin account. Cash account, you pay for everything up front. Margin account, you pay for a portion of it and you're borrowing the rest, like a mortgage on a house. Okay. If you have to make a choice, everything is T plus 2. Settlement is T plus 2. Regardless of cash or margin account, settlement is T plus 2. Settlement is about the security, not the account. Again, cash account, you pay for everything up front. Cash trade is different. Settlement is T plus 2. That means if you buy it on a Monday, two days later, T plus 2. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you settle on Wednesday. That's regular way settlement. Anything different than that, like a treasury or an option, would be T plus 1. That means you buy it on Monday, it settles on Tuesday. Those are the only two things on this exam that settle T plus 1. Treasuries and options. So again, T plus 2, two-day settlement. Options and treasuries, T plus one. If you choose to settle the same day, that's called a cash transaction or a same day settlement. Cash transaction is slang for same day settlement. That's your choice. No security settles T plus zero or same day. So again, everything regular way is T plus two. T plus one is treasuries and options. Same day or cash transaction is a choice. You can do any one of them in any account, any cash or margin account. It's just based on the security. Last thing I'm going to add on this is that actually payment day is two days after that. So after it settles, you have two days to actually pay for it. Ah, wait a second. So a broker-dealer, you buy it on Monday, the broker-dealer pays for it on Wednesday, T plus two. You actually have two more days to pay for it. So payment day or Reg T payment is two days after regular way settlement. So if you buy stock on Monday, it settles on Wednesday, you actually have two days to pay for it. What happens if you don't pay for it? Woo, that's called free riding, and that is a violation. So free riding is when you don't pay for something, and they freeze your account for 90 days. It's not even that big a deal, but it sounds bad. A freezing your account for 90 days just means that you no longer get four days to pay. You have to pay for it same day. That's the game on this. You have to pay for it on the same day before you they will even accept the trade. So freezing the account, you pay for it up front. Please subscribe and share my videos. I'm trying to help you out.